Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection of racial justice, public policy, current events, and world affairs. I am very, very excited to be speaking with Dr. Khalil Gibran Mohammed, who's a dear friend and one of the foremost scholars of race and democracy in the world. Dr. Mohammed is professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. He is the former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, a division of the New York Public Library and the world's leading library and archive of global black history. Dr. Mohammed is the author of really a groundbreaking book that's now considered a classic, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern America, which has just been republished by Harvard, 10th anniversary edition with a new preface. Uh, Khalil, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thank you, Dr. Joseph. It's a real treat to be here at the University of Texas at Austin. You know, I want to talk to you about so many things, but I would be remiss without mentioning that Khalil was part of really an extraordinary project um, that the New York Times convened, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones, um, the 1619 Project about racial slavery and American democracy going all the way back to Jamestown, Virginia, 1619 to the present. And Khalil wrote this really beautiful um, essay uh, about race and the, 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 the sugar trade. And you go down to um, uh, Arab Arabi, Louisiana, um, Domino Sugars, um, Chalmette Refinery there, and you really uncover um, the brutal truth about um, sugar, slavery, and capitalism going all the way back to the 17th century, but how those, those power relations continue to echo today. So I, I want us to start there and then make our way back up um, to the present. But why did the history of racial slavery and its connection to sugar, manufacturing, but also this exploitation of black bodies resonate with you so much. And you also connect this to the criminal justice system and plantations and where Angola, Louisiana is a plantation where prisoners, predominantly African-American, African-Americans actually continue the work of their, their ancestors right. in a different context. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the assignment uh, was uh, really, challenging in some ways because as you and I know, we have a number of amazing colleagues who are slavery experts. And so for me, part of it was to approach this like uh, an investigative journalist trying to learn the significance of this commodity that fundamentally transformed the world. And how, how so? Yeah, because first of all, white people wouldn't be in the Western Hemisphere uh, but for for sugar, and um, the the brutal fact is that, uh, as everyone know, uh, Christopher Columbus comes in 1492 in search of gold. Instead, on his second voyage, he brings a couple of cane stalks with him uh, from the Canary and Azore Islands, which were part of the Spanish and Portuguese Empire, and plants them uh, in South America and unleashes 
what amounts to uh, half a millennia of exploitation. The truth is that sugar had already been shaping the world uh, starting in India, uh, really Papua New Guinea, but starting then in India, and then Arab traders established sugar plantations in the Mediterranean. But because it's a crop that needs semi-tropical um, climate and needs tremendous labor, it was Columbus bringing those cane stalks that was the impetus for what we now call today white gold. Um, it was gangbusters in terms of its economic footprint. So it drove the entire Atlantic slave trade economy before we even get to the British North American experience. And so sugar, when reading your, your essay, I was really very interested because I usually think of this as cotton, as mm -hmm. cotton That's is right. king. And I, you, know, you, you give all the statistics and the data and sugar really was this huge commodity that, that provides one of the engines for this global capitalism, but certainly American capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. So the way to think about it is, um, because the 1619 Project pushes the origin story of, a, of American history mm -hmm. uh, back from the revolutionary period to the colonial era, um, it centralizes slavery as the economic engine that financed essentially wealth creation in the United States. Uh, it gave political meaning to the very notion of liberty and freedom. And of course, all of that intimacy between the enslaved Africans and European uh, settler colonists created a hybrid culture. So the, the conceit or the focus of the Sugar article was to say, well, the truth is white people were here long before 1776. They were here before 1619. They had already created sugar islands from in uh, Barbados, Jamaica, uh, Cuba, um, uh, Guyana. Uh, Brazil was a major sugar and still today is one of the leading uh, producers of sugar. So it's impossible to understand European settlement conquest, the indigenous genocide that experienced even before 1619. But then the point is that today, Americans consume more sugar than any other country in the world. And what this reporting taught me to some degree is that black people have always been on the short end of a cane stalk from, <laughs> from, from that early history to the present, from what I call from the plantation uh, to the present, uh, black people are still suffering overwhelmingly from the health effects and the impact of sugar. And you write down here, if it is killing all of us, it is killing black people faster. Um, and I want you to discuss that both in the past and the present. Yeah. So the thing is, coming back to the point of cotton, cotton takes off essentially in the 19th century. But of course, between, say, 1619, when the first Africans arrived, there's tobacco cultivation, there's indigo, there's rice, and then there's still cotton, but cotton doesn't become a major export for the United States until the 19th century as a result of Eli Whitten, Whitney's cotton gin. So the impact of sugar is one that basically shows how you could not, um, you could not place the broader economic context of how America's trade functions. So give an example. Every one of two ships that came into the New York City Harbor in the early 18th century was carrying either slaves or sugar. Mm. And exporting from the United States was sending out flour, uh, shipbuilding materials. Uh, in other words, 
even before Americans themselves were cultivating sugar here in the United States, which really doesn't take off until the 19th century, sugar was driving a global economy of which New York as a finance capital was building up its resources. People were making money. So one quick example from the article, um, if we think about the built environment as a reflection of what's important to us, yeah. New York's Wall Street was built by slaves, but its most important church, Trinity Church, uh, which was on the west side, was the tallest physical structure of lower Manhattan. Guess what was even taller than Trinity? The sugar warehouses that were on the east side of Manhattan. So the centrality of sugar to understanding even how the United States began to build up before we get to cotton is what's so important to this story. And you, you really, in this story, I was surprised at the number of revolts and rebellions by enslaved African-Americans, including ones that I hadn't heard of, one that happens in 1811. I heard of Nat Turner, heard of Gabriel Prosser. But you really look at, um, you juxtapose the actual brutality um, that was utilized to cultivate enforced African-American labor, and you juxtapose that against this sort of mythology of happy Negroes right. um, and sort of mint juleps um, um, and this sepia-toned version of, of, of the South. Yeah, so the thing about, uh, different from cotton, uh, again, um, Sugar was far more brutal, a form of cultivation. So in- And why of, was that? Well, it's, it's because, um, first of all, it's a very difficult crop to wield. Um, so while cotton is tough to pick, uh, sugar is a massive crop. I mean, it can grow to 12 feet tall. And by that, I mean not sugar cane. Uh, the actual plant itself can grow to 12 feet tall. So, you know, the process essentially is you've got to plant this cane, then you've got to weed it to make sure that weeds don't take over because it's essentially a grass. And then because cane knives, which essentially are machetes, are constantly being wielded to harvest the crop, people are, you know, in danger constantly. How do you weed the crop? You have to set fires in the field so people are subject to fires. And then probably the most significant aspect of cane cultivation was that at harvest time, you have to clear acres and acres of cane from the field, but you have to do it within 24 to 48 hours. Wow. Because otherwise the juice inside, which is the white gold of the plant, will, will, will rot. It will be no good. And once you get it to the mill, there's these massive rollers. I mean, you know, part of the, the, the reporting on this and, and study of it, Solomon Northrup describes in his own memoir, 12 Years a Slave, how children are used in the process of getting the cane stalk uh, into these mills where these massive rollers are rolling it. You know, people were losing limbs doing this work so that they kept a machete near the, um, uh, near the, the, the rollers so that if your arm got caught as it was being fed into the machine, they'd cut it off. So the average length of mortality it is estimated, was as low as seven years for a person working on a cane plantation. And that was true in Jamaica as it was true in Louisiana. And so unlike cotton, sugar was just far more dangerous. And what that meant was the danger of sugar um, enabled the kind of organizing and protection of, of enslaved people that, as you well know, contributed to uh, transforming the entire Western Hemisphere, starting with Haiti and its revolt. 
those were sugar workers. Those were sugar rebels. And so that kind of um, expansion of democracy by way of a resistance to slavery uh, and sugar slavery in particular carried over into the United States with this you know, incredible slave uprising in 1811 called the German Coast Uprising to reflect a part of the southern Louisiana along the Mississippi River where Germans had, um, had, had been prominent in European settlement. But ultimately, in 1811, a group of uh, enslaved workers uh, set out in a liberation army to free themselves in New Orleans. Uh, the estimates run as few as 100 to 500. Uh, they were caught pretty quickly. Federal troops were deployed. And at least 100 were executed, which is twice the number executed in Nat Turner's Rebellion, which took place nearly 20 years later. What's so telling about this event is that it's nearly been redacted from the historical record. And one of the speculations for why it's been redacted from the historical record, historians think it is truly the largest slave uprising in North America, is the redaction because it showed the capacity of enslaved workers to come together and throw off the yoke of slavery. And so while Nat Turner may or may not have heard of this uprising, the point was that Haiti had clearly set in motion the capacity of black people to free themselves. These folks did it. The estimates that there were actual former Haitian um, enslaved workers who were brought to, the, to Louisiana from that period were in this rebellion. I mean, it was, it was a very scary enterprise for, uh, for white Americans. Yeah, and somebody who's who's a proud Haitian American, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that um, it's extraordinary because uh, I think that's spot on your analysis because there was so much fear and loathing of Haiti. Thomas Jefferson starts the first embargo of a revolutionary nation. We think about the Cuban embargo. There's a Haitian embargo, yeah. and they're really fearful. And you you talk about uh, uh, Toussaint uh, Louverture, but you talk about Jean-Jacques Dessalines and, and 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 the force and the violence that it took to to turn that colony of enslaved Africans into a republic of free women and men, right. uh, they were very, very um, fearful. I want to jump forward a bit. Um, last thing on this article and then get to condemnation and really wider um, subject matter. Um, the carceral state. You've written so brilliantly about um, really the origins of mass incarceration and connected to crime statistics, eugenics. Um, what happened to African-Americans in the late 19th, early 20th century um, and sort of the incipient creation of the carceral state. I was very, very intrigued by the connection between the carceral state of this period um, and sugar cultivation and how that continues yeah. into, into our own time. Well, part of the brilliance of this whole 1619 project was to say, you know, here are these things that are part of our daily lives, but most of us have no idea that they connect to the past. And so obviously sugar is, is you know, we're here sitting here drinking. I, I have a little honey in my I've coffee. It's, not, my it's not refined sugar. <laughs> it didn't come from a cane uh, plantation, but it is, a, you know, a form of sugar. Um, so that was the point. But they did this with health care. Uh, they did this with our political institutions. And of course, Brian Stevenson even himself makes a connection to the carceral state and mass incarceration in the piece. So what's interesting is uh, when, you, when you assume that these things have no connection, what you find is that 
uh, in Louisiana, slavery was, I'm sorry, sugar slavery was the economic engine. I mean, Louisiana was the second richest state in the antebellum period. There was more banking finance capital running through New Orleans because of the size of the slave market than in, than in New York City or Massachusetts. Mm. So this is a big deal. And of course, what would we see? We would see the line blur between the scale of a plantation operation during the antebellum period to the scale of an incipient, as you say, carceral state yeah. Yeah. that wants to essentially reinscribe a form of slavery yes. to those workers. The whole point of the convict leasing and chain gang regime that, that occurs after slavery was to control black labor. It wasn't necessarily to incapacitate in the way that mass incarceration today puts people in prison and that's it. It was to say, if you don't play by these unfair rules where we are economically exploiting you like we did at slavery, you're going to end up behind a prison wall. And so that's exactly what happened. Angola was, was a large sugar plantation that was purchased by the state of Louisiana in 1901. Today, it is the largest maximum security prison in current operation in the nation. And guess what? Black folks are still cultivating slave crops, including sugar, on that plantation as part of the slave labor that they do. The 13th Amendment, as we know, still allows for slavery in the United States as punishment for a crime. And they're selling the syrup that is processed from the sugar cultivation in the prison gift shop. It's remarkable. Now, I want to I want to um, pivot, but continue to explore, because I think one of the things that your work has done here in the 1619 Project and just your own scholarship and your engagement in public history, which I want to talk about, is really link these things that we usually think are not connected. Mm -hmm. Slavery, capitalism, democracy, incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes Michelle Alexander has called uh, this the new Jim Crow. And I think the new Jim Crow is beyond just about mass incarceration. It's really every aspect of American society, American democracy, our institutions, mm -hmm. top to bottom, bottom to top. So I want to I talk about your role vis-a-vis -vis the condemnation of blackness 10 years ago. And this is a really, really big book. I, in, in a lot of ways, I think me and um, Dr. Muhammad are, are of the same generation. And I've said this to other people, I can say it on air. So I, I think of this book, The Condemnation of Blackness, the kind of book um, that when I was in graduate school was reminiscent of this book was both um, Robin Kelly's um, Hammer and Ho, uh, which was about black um, communists in Alabama during the Great Depression and sort of showed how there was this grassroots insurgency, oppositional strategies, uh, critiques of capitalism, but also Tom Segrew's The Origins of the Urban Crisis, because these were books that were so singular that even if people had talked about that subject matter before, these books really crystallized and distilled the argument for really not just scholarly audiences, but for mass audiences, right? A ton of people read The Condemnation of Blackness alongside of Michelle Alexander's bestselling The New Jim Crow. So I want to talk about your role in really um, transforming the historiography of not just mass incarceration, but the connection race, democracy, citizenship um, in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. So I yeah, wanna... yeah, no. So, I mean, I, I really appreciate the, um, that, uh, Peniel, because as you well know, you know, all of us, the, the larger profession, particularly of scholars who are focused on race and questions of, of democracy and citizenship, you know, we're a big group. Um, and and the community that we represent largely is still marginalized within the academy. And so I don't take for granted that anything I did or anyone else that I did 
would make a difference in the larger currents of American scholarship. But in this case, um, you know, I was interested in this topic um, at a time when, I mean, I've t told you this before, I would go to conferences, everyone would be doing black freedom studies. And it's not to say black freedom studies is still like the dominant field of American, 20th century American history, but amongst our peers, a lot of people were doing great work. I was going to conferences and no one was coming to my panels. So I stopped going. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But that was before someone like Michelle Alexander had helped to turn the national conversation. And if you think about that work, that work came out literally one year uh, before mine, January or so in 2009. Mine came out January of 2010. Mm -hmm. And that was, of course, also before Ta-Nehisi Coates began writing and making all of these connections for a general audience through his uh, blog on The Atlantic and then later through case his for reparations. case for reparations. And so, you know, it's also, as you well know, you were doing PBS NewsHour programs uh, in, in the uh, moment of Obama's emergence. And so there was all this headiness about post-racialism and this headiness about, you know, turning the corner on history, so much so that as I was putting the final touches on this book, I was like, Maybe I should change the title. You know, it should no longer be uh, the condemnation of, of blackness, um, race, crime, and the making of modern urban Americans. It should be the condemnation of blackness before the election of Barack Obama. <laughs> 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 because this idea that no one's going to care about this history. Uh, and yet the truth is that the state of affairs of having the largest prison population by any historical measure, by per capita rates, by comparisons internationally, by expenditures, 2.3 million people at its height, 7 million people under some form of criminal justice supervision, uh, a radical reversal in the demographics where 70% of white Americans had been locked up in some prison cell in the 1970s to 70% black and brown uh, by the turn of the 20th century. All of a sudden, the need and search for an origin story um, became a big part of the national conversation. And so I got lucky, man. I mean, <laughs> just well, to be frank. I, I think you're being too, too <laughs> modest, but tell us about um, that origin story, because this has a new preface that's really specifically written yeah. for public engagement, so that students, whether they were undergraduate or high school students, in addition to graduate students and scholars, can see an encapsulated, synthesized argument. What is the argument um, behind the condemnation of blackness? Yeah, so I uh, basically make three really important interventions. One is that the story of what happened in the 20th century northern city is very important to understanding the origins of mass incarceration, as important as understanding the emergence of convict leasing and chain gangs in the Jim Crow South. A lot of people had looked at the Jim Crow South almost I don't want to overstate the case. Very, very few people had looked at the black experience in the Great Migration North up to the present. Absolutely. And so that intervention exposed that the narrative, the discursive terrain, the ideas about black people were not in the language of white supremacy. They were in the language of crime statistics. It was the everyday um, evocation of this notion that, well, black people are dangerous. You can't live in the neighborhood near them. Uh, their migrants are more prone to um, acts of violence. And so it was through this emergent statistical discourse that I was able to see that people who often self-identified as liberals and progressives in the early 20th century, in the 1900s, 1910s, et cetera, were essentially it building the argument that is part of our present, which is that I'm not a racist, but black people have a crime problem. 
I'm not a racist, but stop and frisk is good for black people. I'm not a racist, but there are so many black people in prison today because of the bad decisions they make. That was happening at the turn of the 20th century. And so it, it, there's a problem there, because if most of us could look back on the turn of the 20th century, even in these big northern cities, and say, well, things obviously weren't entirely fair. I mean, we can't assume that all those Irish police officers were post-racial and not you know, uh, showing bias and racism towards African Americans. Um, then all of a sudden now the statistical argument starts to look a little shaky. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to close the gap between that past critique of those crime statistics mm -hmm. and our present acceptance of them. You don't get to a Mayor Michael Bloomberg defending 12 years of stop and frisk in the biggest, bluest city in America who's now running for president defending stop and frisk, which is fundamentally now we know a racist project of discrimination. And a flawed one, too. And a flawed one, too. The second point was to say, okay, even if we took at face value that African Americans did have a crime and violence problem, that they were on average more likely to engage in property crimes and crimes against people, then what are we to do about it? And all of a sudden, you look at the story of European immigrants, of Irish and Italians in some of these same big cities, and the response to their crime and their violence, the response to their inequality and their segregation, their own uh, immigrant ghettos, was to actually invest in those communities, to change the narrative about them, to essentially see violence and crime in those communities as a symptom of economic inequality. And that's as the a, progressive era. That's the progressive era, as a symptom of neglect. And so what I wanted to offer was not just a counter-narrative, but an actual proof that in our own country, the evidence of crime and violence, even when it's accurate, right, even if you remove the innocence claim and say some of these people are actually guilty, the solution is not by definition more policing and more prisons or chain gangs and convict leases. Yeah, or punishment. Or punishment in general. That in fact you can invest in these communities because you see them as part of the nation state. You see them, their citizenship as essential to the health and welfare of the nation. And so that was a big, big part of the analysis. The third analysis was really a kind of um, what we would call an epistemological one, which is I began to call into question the way that the history of social science itself is implicated in reifying and reinforcing racism in our democracy. And, and for, for our listeners, uh, epistemology is just basically the philosophical foundations of knowledge and knowledge production. That's right. So Dr. Muhammad does a huge intervention in, in the sense of saying all these studies, all this scholarship on this topic is inherently intrinsically flawed. That's right. Because the thing about crime statistics is they seem to be easily measured. And so the reason why people even today gesture or evoke them or just bring them up, you know, people constantly say, well, the numbers speak for themselves. The, the rates of crime and violence in Chicago, you know, I'm not making that up. Those are the facts. So the point is like, oh, we assume that even things we call facts are not a product of political decisions and power. So give two quick examples. Um, we used to know, for example, I say this all the time, like um, how many Irish Americans uh, in Austin, Texas committed armed robbery last year or Italian Americans. Nobody knows because our uh, state or government doesn't keep track of white ethnicity as a measure of criminality, but it used to. 
And not only did it used to, it used to do so in such an important way that it was justification for closing the borders to the Italian and Irish in the 1920s. So that's a, an, an example of things we think are facts are actually political choices and often in the interest of denying people's full citizenship rights. The current example would be the current Trump administration in its first and second attempts to get a Muslim ban was calling for the federal government to create a new crime category of the uh, statistical surveillance for foreign nationals because it wanted to prove the case that Muslim immigrants were more likely to engage in crime, when by every other evidence we know that immigrants are less likely to commit crime. So that intervention essentially made the case that social science is too reliant on things it can easily measure to make truth claims about how we should use our resources. Though perhaps the other example, which I think is really important in this moment, is early arguments for the use of crime statistics gave way to what we would call Jim Crow education. The separate but equal logic that black people don't deserve the same quality education in America was partly based on crime statistics. And the argument essentially was, well, if black people keep committing so much crime, then schools aren't making a difference. Why should we invest in their education? If you look today, there is still arguments and evidence by economists who are measuring various schools and their effectiveness in educating African-American children on whether the crime rates are going up or going down. So the correlation or the association between whether a school is doing well and how much crime is in that community is a legacy of this past. I joke to my Harvard students and I say, you know, if we were to try to quantify the economic and social impact of the crimes of Harvard alumni, members of the white elite who, whether it's housing crises, whether it's participation in the slave trade, whether it's political choices that they've made and substantiated, stop and frisk, for example, was partly invented at the Harvard Kennedy School where I currently work. We could quantify economically devastating toll on our democracy in terms of how many people lost their rights to vote, how many people's homes were lost in their economic foothold on America was stripped and pulled from underneath them by legitimate financial transactions. Um, that's a simple way of saying, we have no idea how many crimes have been committed by Harvard alumni because nobody's counting. That's a great point to pivot to the present. Um, I think your work uh, so, does so much brilliant illumination for the way in which we live now in terms of to sh show us an origin story of um, a present of real racial division, mm -hmm. um, certainly a present of real uh, recruitments of uh, white supremacy, both as a national political project, but also as a cultural project. When we think about um, the smears against Colin Kaepernick, when we think about the smears against young African-American women and men who've been shot and killed by the police, whether it's Corinne Gaines or Trayvon Martin. Um, I want us to look for a way forward mm -hmm. um, as we, as we, you know, we're going to conclude. But I want us to, because I think that easily the best thing I've seen in my time, my lifetime as a scholar, um, is, is how we've gotten deeper into this story. You know, really with the help of work um, like yourselves, like yourself, but also the 1619 Project, um, the work of 
you know, so many different scholars and activists and organizers, we actually have a much more sophisticated, I would argue the most sophisticated understanding that we've ever had about the connection between race, slavery, capitalism, American history. Yeah. Things that Dr. King, Malcolm X, Ella Baker didn't have, even though I think they felt, yeah. Fannie Lou Hamer. So what can we do? What's the way forward now utilizing this evidence and marshalling? And it's getting, New York Times, you're part of a project that has been read by millions of people globally. So yeah. what can we do? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. And I'm smiling as you're talking because um, I'm, I'm gonna give the, the both hand uh, response. So on one hand, I think we'll start with the bad news so we can end, end this podcast on a good note. Okay, okay. <laughs> so the bad news is that if we think about climate change, we can, we can acknowledge that uh, a decade of scientific research has built the capacity for us to measure um, ice cap melt uh, in the Arctic. Uh, we can measure all over the country uh, rising sea levels. And we know now, based on scientific consensus, that releasing carbon into the atmosphere has been a primary driver of climate change. And so the solution to that is rolling back our carbon emissions and beginning to prepare for alternative fuel sources so that we can cut back on greenhouse emissions. All of that is a, what I think of as an analogous example of what you just described, which is from the time of 1968 when Dr. King and Ella Baker were at their height to 50 years later, you and I represent two generations removed of people who've been able to not only study and learn from that movement, but been able to deepen and enhance the quote unquote scientific understanding of race in our society vis-a-vis -vis higher education. So the solution is the same for us. We have the same political problem. We have the evidence, we have the academic consensus, but we have to continue to do the work to move the political and the advocacy needle to educate our students so that they treat this as the scientific problem that it is. One of the most compelling things that Dr. King said in his last book, and I know you know because you have just written an amazing book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, out this April. You know this from his last book, which is that Dr. King not only recognized that the legislative achievements of the civil rights movement were not enough, just like Obama's um, climate policy or the Paris Accords was not enough. Why wasn't it enough? Because even if you get a policy on the books, someone will come along and say, why are we doing this? This is un-American, this is a bad idea. So Dr. King recognized that the problem wasn't simply changing the law. The problem was that racism was a cancer on American society. And Americans kept turning away from recognizing that cancer as something it had to focus on. He used the word scientifically. He said we have to fight it frontally. And so I think of our work today with the same point of view. I think of African-American history as a kind of social vaccination that can immunize our population, particularly our youngest citizens, both native-born and newcomer alike, who will be exposed to this story going back to the founding of this country, going back even further to the capacity of human beings to exploit each other in the name of economic progress. If we teach our children these histories starting in kindergarten, 
By the time they get to college, it won't be new information. I'm teaching folks in, at Harvard University and the Kennedy School have never heard of most of these histories and then become very angry that they're in their 20s and 30s and they feel like they've been mis miseducated. And in fact, they have been miseducated. So to come full circle, the solution to this problem, Peniel, is that you and I and so many others have to continue to build infrastructure so that the science of racism becomes conventional wisdom in our society, that we help to uh, make people smarter and that we ultimately strengthen our democracy because by the time a five-year-old becomes a 25-year-old, becomes a 35-year-old who might or might not want to run for president, that person will respect climate change. That person will respect um, the civil liberties and human rights of people, whether they're here in the United States or in other parts of the globe. And maybe, just maybe, we can imagine a way of organizing our limited resources, of which capitalism has said that we should all be greedy and therefore out of our own greed, we will build a better society. Just maybe we can imagine a different way of organizing our economies so that we treat each other better. All right, we're going to end on that note. Um, Dr. Khalil Gibran Mohammed, we're talking optimistically about the way in which we can um, talk about our racial history, but also move towards um, a scientific understanding of, I guess, both racism, but also anti-racism, because the work that you do um, uh, is really about anti-racism and sort of trying to infuse that in our public policy, but political culture, but also our civil and civic discourse. You do so much wonderful public history uh, work, both as the former director of the Schomburg Center um, and as now a uh, professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. Um, Dr. Muhammad has um, edited issues of the Journal of American History. He's written extensively uh, for the New York Times, the New Yorker, Washington Post, um, and he is the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern America. Uh, which is out from Harvard University, just um, published again. And you only get your book published a couple of times, people, if it's really a classic, um, in a new edition with a new preface, 10th anniversary edition. Um, Khalil, thank you for joining us here at Race and Democracy. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.